Hello from the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain here at MIT's Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Trent Carlisle. I'm Chris Jaggers. I'm Lawrence Coletti. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here at MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain. Today we're talking about practical applications of blockchain beyond digital currency. Uh, thanks, Chris, for joining us today. Hey, happy to be here. Great. Uh, why don't you just start off by giving us a little information on yourself, your background, and what your company does? Sure. I'm the CEO of a company called Learning Machine. Um, we worked with uh, MIT to help create the open source standard for um, issuing official records on the blockchain so that people can own their records and use them directly in the world and have them verified. Um, and we also create enterprise software to make it easy for schools and companies and governments to issue official records uh, that are registered on the blockchain and verifiable anywhere. Gotcha, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so a lot of the conversations at least we're having over here uh, internally and amongst some folks back uh, in, our, in our offices are uh, wanting to learn about practical uh, examples of use of blockchain uh, applications. Uh, MIT just published a case study just a couple weeks ago, so let's use that as a starting point. Um, we worked with them to create their diploma in a digital format um, and issued and have that issued to students um, in, a, in a format that they can own. They can hold it on their phone. Um, they own the private keys so they can demonstrate ownership of the diploma and they can actually use it anywhere in the world and have it be verified. Um, so MIT recreated the look and feel of their diploma, so it, it looks like the paper diploma, but it's actually a digital object. Um, and, this, and they were really pioneering this space, and it's exciting because the diploma is one concrete example, but it, it could really be any kind of record. And that's out in the wild that we're already seeing diplomas yeah. on phones? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, we have them now. We we're working with dozens of schools worldwide. We're also working with um, companies to provide workforce training or professional certifications. For instance, we're working with the Federation of State Medical Boards to issue a licensure for medical practice. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this is something that's getting started. And the way I like to simplify it for people um, is that you know you have a traditional PKI infrastructure because we've we've had digital signatures before, mm -hmm. and th and that hasn't changed. It's just traditionally you consult a central authority um, to say, hey, does the hash on this record here in my lap match? the hash in the central authority. Um, the only difference now is that hash is being stored across a decentralized network rather than a central authority. It's the only difference. And Chris, just real quick, uh, when you said uh, the little acronym you used, uh, is it PKI? Yeah. Is that publicly kept information? Private key. Private key. That's what the PK, yeah. Uh, you know, just for our attorney uh, audience out there, me included, uh, what does that mean exactly? So digital signatures are nothing new. Um, private key infrastructure is what that stands for. Means that a, a document is signed by a, an institution that is issuing it with, some, with their cryptographic key. And, and then... Um, so, in a, in a sense, it shows some provenance that it originated from them. Um, and a hash of that document is stored with the central authority or the issuer themselves. Um, then later, when it needs to be verified, um, a hash of the document that is in the court um, or somewhere else being used in the world um, is compared to the one that's stored with that central authority. And when those hashes match, you can say a document is verified 
and digitally signed. The thing that's interesting right now is that a decentralized network is providing that verification. And that network exists across jurisdictions, across sovereign borders, is always available and is tamper-proof. So that brings up some interesting legal questions. It's certainly more convenient because it often takes a long time to consult with the central authority. Uh, there's time and expense. And when central authorities get wiped out, you have a complete loss of record. So this is a much more durable infrastructure for verification. Uh, talk a little bit about the uh, your impression of the legal form here at MIT thus far. What what brought you here? Uh, different approaches that you've seen discussed, and where do you think that uh, you fit into all this? Yeah, so the legal form's been a great uh, environment to bring lawyers to the table to discuss legal perspectives on this new technology, and it, it's certainly really important. Um, and there's a lot. With, as with any new technology space, there's going to be a variety of technical approaches to how, uh, how people think about it, how it gets implemented. Um, at the forum, we've seen a lot of interest in permissioned blockchains. Um, that, is, um, that is networks that are formed by a permissioned group of members that control um, how it's accessed and how it's utilized. Um, and that's certainly a sensible response for people who want to be the adults in the room and do things responsibly. Um, However, um, I represent a slightly different point of view, which is I think we're entering an age of decentralized uh, software applications. That is, these are, this is software that is run by a decentralized network. It's not controlled by any government or central authority. Um, and it's a, that forms a new age of computing, which is actually impossible to control. So my question for lawyers is how are you going to respond as, as new decentralized technologies begin to spread into different uh, different areas that, that have legal implications. Chris, can you give us an example of a decentralized technology just to kind of help bring that message home? Yeah, so Bitcoin is significant because it's the first uh, example of a decentralized application that's running without any central governance structure uh, for the last nine years. It hasn't been hacked, it's growing in value, and it's disrupting money everywhere. Um, it, its continued success is important because it's, it's a super concrete example of how a decentralized network can work, even within a very difficult domain like money. But it's not the only one. You've got Ethereum now providing a decentralized network to perform computations. You've got IPFS providing a decentralized network for file storage. Um, there's hundreds of them, literally. Uh, many of them are experimental and don't last, but the ones that do last are going to fundamentally change the world. Uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but you know we're here where most of the people in this room are involved in law in some way. Many are, are attorneys. Why should our audience care? Why should they want to learn about blockchain? Um, why should law firms be thinking about this technology as, uh, as they continue forward? Well, I think decentralized applications are a new form of computation. So just as it was significant when electronic computers were born, and it was, it was hugely significant when the World Wide Web was born. It, it changed the world we live in. I believe decentralized applications are going to also change the world we live in. It's as fundamental a technology that's going to remake every industry eventually. And that's going to have legal consequences because it's a, it's a horizontal technology that cuts across borders, cuts across industries. And I think it's very important that, um, that lawyers be thinking about how to respond to this inevitable tidal wave of technical change. Right. right. Well, uh, Chris, so, you know, 
One of the things that uh, Illegal Talk Network specializes in is trying to get the good message out to attorneys. Uh, and try, we try to be as practical in our applications as possible. And so, you know, blockchain, uh, I'll, I'll confess this earlier this year, I didn't know what it was. And I've been slowly learning as we've been traveling to different places around the country and talking with different speakers and presenters. But what I wanted to do, and I think this is what's been kind of missing in some of our coverage, is that I'd like to get into practical applications. I'd like to get into the problems that it solves what are attorneys actually going to be using with this? And if you have a popular name of a software application, that'd be great. I think it helps drive that message sure. home and helps educate attorneys. Like this is going on, like whether you know about it or not, blockchain is here and chances are you're probably using it already. So why don't we build on that? Yeah, well, I'll use my own company as a concrete example. If you go to our uh, website, learningmachine.com, um, it's, it's intended for a, a general audience to understand how the blockchain can be used to issue and, and, and verify official records. Um, so again, um, the blockchain as a technology is simply a distributed ledger of transactions, and it shines as a technology when it tracks the transfer of value from one person to another. Um, but that simple formula can be implemented in all kinds of ways. So again, we're using it as a timestamp for official records and for, and for decentralized verification of things like academic records, uh, professional certifications, workforce training, civic records even, things like that. Imagine you could own your, your birth certificate or your, your electronic ID or bank statements and be able to use your records uh, directly with a third party without having them be transmitted on your behalf, without having to pay money and wait a long time. The ability to hold your own records in your own digital wallet and use them directly in the world and have them be instantly verified is a whole new normal around digital records that you know, I think has direct legal implications. Okay, so we talked about a little bit about Bitcoin. We're talking about authenticating records, verifying them. Uh, and so one thing that came up here was birth certificates. To be able to prove that that's actually who you are, that you're born on a certain date. But uh, you know, uh, what are some of the, the other documents and functions for blockchain that attorneys need to be aware of in their practice? Well, literally think about any kind of document that uh, someone may need to own or use in the world. So when you're young, your academic records are basically your, the official documents that constitute who you are and your history. As you get older, that may include marriage certificates. It may include uh, proof of employment. It may include proof of workforce training. It may in, uh, include important awards. Um, it may include anything that you need to demonstrate what you've achieved in your life as part of a lifelong record uh, of learning. You know, and this is my area of expertise. I think you know, as you zoom out more broadly, you're, you're going to hear a whole universe of use cases. The fundamental power of the technology is it puts power in the hands of individual people to own their data and use it directly in the world through a peer-to-peer -peer network without having to rely on power brokers and middlemen to do it for them. So it's a whole new way of thinking about interacting with other people. Uh, say clearly we're looking a lot of the applications we're looking off into the future you know we could apply it towards this we will apply it towards that um, how is that path being uh, managed or monitored through standards or consortiums can you talk to that a little bit and how, how we how do we get there that's a great question we're we're starting with technical standards mm -hmm. because if these things um, don't interoperate technically it doesn't matter how much social adoption you have right. uh, it's still going to be rough um, I think people often confuse technical standards with social standards. Uh, social standards have to do with acceptance. And I think often, you know, people want to be taken care of. They, they try to seek out social adoption first before there are technical standards. 
But the risk of that is it promotes some big company to come in and, 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 and provide a proprietary walled garden that instantly gets social acceptance, but doesn't truly provide that decentralized, open infrastructure that, that the blockchain promises. So we're starting with technical standards. We co-chair the W3C's Communities Credentials Group. Um, we work uh, and, and are aligned with a variety of standards bodies to make sure these records are machine readable anywhere. Um, the next phase of that is building social consensus and saying, hey, what kinds of legal questions do these bring up? Will you accept these as legally valid? Um, and so forth. But I think you have to start with the technical standards. So I think my last question on my mental list, and there might be some more, but uh, you know, as uh, cryptocurrencies are becoming more, and that's uh, Bitcoin's an example of that, as they become more popular, this is becoming something that's showing up in trust and estates. And so as people transfer their estate to other people, you know, these are questions that attorneys are going to have to be asking because it's yeah. not like you can see the cryptocurrency. That's you right. might have a record of it. So in that vein, uh, some of the terminology that lawyers need to be aware of, maybe you can help them with that and maybe some of the areas of law that you think you know, attorneys need to kind of heads up, especially like trusted estates attorneys, ask about cryptocurrencies and other types of transfers uh, that you know, run through blockchain. Uh, maybe give us some examples of that. Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, and we might need to start with what cryptocurrencies are sure. and, and then address the question. You know, and, and they're actually, I think, more important than the word blockchain. Cryptocurrencies are what make decentralized networks possible. Um, so basically, what is a decentralized network? It's, it's software that runs, just like software you're used to using every day, except it's run by a network of computers rather than a central authority or company. There is no controlling body. Uh, well, why do they do that? They're incentivized financially with cryptocurrency to perform the service. So in Bitcoin, it's money. In Ethereum, it's computation and, or file storage. If that service becomes valuable, then the coin becomes valuable, the cryptocurrency, and that can be exchanged for fiat money. Um, so a lot of people own these coins. There's, there's hundreds of them. Uh, and you, you're right, you can't see it, you can't feel it, um, but it is owned and their ownership is demonstrated through uh, private keys, which is a string of numbers and letters that only you have ownership of. And getting that to someone else, if someone else takes ownership of that key, if they see it, they now own your cryptocurrency. So it's, it's tough to keep it secure. And I think there's lots of interesting questions in terms of how to transfer ownership of cryptocurrencies in the case of uh, wills or, or death or, or any other case, because it really is uh, simply a demonstration of ownership of that string of numbers and letters. And how about uh, SEC attorneys? You know, when I heard uh, ICO. Yeah, the so big topic. So uh, the SEC is taking an approach where um, to protect consumer interests, they want to make sure that these coins aren't really just pseudo securities where people are giving a company or startup a lot of money and not uh, and thinking they're getting some sort of ownership when in fact they're not. So they're, they're stepping in slowly, uh, and I respect the way they're stepping into this to say, hey, without shutting down this space, how can we provide some consumer protections um, against things that appear like securities but are not, while leaving open the door for cryptocurrencies that are actually what they call utility tokens, that is, they're necessary to incentivize the network to perform the service. Um, and so these are some fine distinctions that the SEC is slowly getting into. And I even expect the FTC to look at this from a consumer protection point of view, um, because there's just an awful lot of money sloshing around and, and, frankly, a lot of scams and people getting ripped off. We just can't let all those scams um, hide the fact that it, it is early days, 
but it is a fundamentally new technology that is very promising. Um, and so I respect the way the SEC is looking at it now. So it sounds like SEC attorneys, you know, say it's a company that's uh, going public or has been public and they're doing new offerings. Uh, an SEC attorney needs to ask them, sounds like, uh, are you doing any ICOs? Are you holding any uh, cryptocurrencies? Do you have involvement in Bitcoin? Are you transferring assets to there? Is that something you would recommend they uh, inquire about? No, I, I think, you know, that might go beyond their purview. I think it has more to do with new initiatives. You know, most ICOs are a group of kids that have a white paper. There's no real tech and they're raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and then they walk away with the money, you know. So I think those are the types of situations that need to be prevented. All right, Chris, that's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. Uh, we also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.